Uh, thanks for coming out this morning. It's, uh, man, great again to see everybody and to be worshiping together and folks who've been at Calvary for decades and folks who maybe this is your first week or so, no matter where you are on that spectrum, we're glad that you're here. And if you grabbed a bulletin, <clears throat> there's a way for you to let us know that you're here this morning and you can fill out one of the contact cards or there's a digital QR code. And um, man, if you just want to get us some emails about what's going on here or ways that we can help connect and care for you, uh, if you have any questions about spirituality or need prayer, there's all sorts of ways for you to inform us of that so that we can walk with you uh, as well as we can during that process. So we'd invite you to fill that out. Um, <clears throat> crazy times, right? And uh, it would be remiss not to begin by kind of just pausing for a minute and thinking about something that hasn't happened for decades uh, over in Europe um, and just uh, tragic and senseless and pain. And I think it's perhaps easy for some of us to <clears throat> not let it sink into us and think maybe we're watching a movie. It's not a movie. It's people like you and people like me with houses and dreams and careers and babies and grandparents and health issues who, man, are just trying to figure out if they're going to make it to the day. Um, and those are real people going through real crises. And there's real crises that go around the world every day, right? I mean, if you think about all the wars in Africa that happen regularly that don't get all the airplay that this is getting. Um, we live in a broken and a fallen world. And so what we're going to do, we're part of a denomination called <clears throat> the Evangelical Free Church in America, the EFCA, and they have a missions arm, a service arm known as Reach Global, and Reach Global has a crisis response uh, team, a group, and we've gotten some emails towards the end of the week about ways that local churches can engage to try to provide some humanitarian support. Um, some specific ways from requests coming out of churches that our denomination has planted in Ukraine of ways that we can pray. And so what we're going to do, we don't have all that information compiled for you this morning, and probably the most efficient way is to email that out to you. And so either on Monday or Tuesday, we'll send an email to everybody in our database. If we don't have you in our database, we're not trying to spam you. We're trying to provide to you helpful information. And so if this is a piece of helpful information and we don't yet have your contact information, We'd invite you to give it to us, that contact card. <clears throat> but Monday or Tuesday, we'll be emailing out um, just kind of some tangible ways that we as a church can partner with other churches and partner with the work of Jesus to, to try to do something. Um, and there's going to be some specific prayer requests. There'll be a link that you can provide some funds to our denomination, through the denomination, to try to provide some uh, relief efforts. Um, and hey, God is sovereign and God is in charge. And why God allows this to happen when we know that you continually read in the book of Psalms that it is the Lord that directs the heart of a king, why God allows some leaders to do some horrific thing and doesn't miraculously intervene, I have no idea. And we can look in the Bible all we want and try and figure that out, and we will never find it. The only thing we'll find is that he is God, and he does as he pleases, and he asks us to trust him and to trust his character. And sometimes it's hard to understand all that. But in those moments, we still trust. And so it's a chance for us to support brothers and sisters in Jesus and people who maybe don't know Jesus, but God deeply loves who are going through pain and sorrow and sadness that I cannot imagine. I mean, imagine if you're a guy, <clears throat> probably every guy in this room, most of you, every guy being told, hey, your family's going to go out of town and get out of here, and you stay here and fight. And you don't know if you're going to see him again. I mean, that's it. Ugh. 
It's a broken world. It's not the world God wants. It's the world we live in. And we have a chance to pray. And so we're going to pray, and then we're going to press into what God has for us. Um, and God has something for us here today. But so let me take a, a few moments, and um, we're going to pray for the people going through it. And I'm just going to walk you through it, okay? And I'll ask you to pray quietly at your seats and, and through two categories, and I'll wrap us up. And so I would invite you now to bow your heads and close your eyes for those of you who are followers of Jesus. <clears throat> um, and first, let's just pray for... The people of Ukraine. And now I'd ask you to pray for the leaders of Ukraine and the leaders of Europe who are surrounding this just for wisdom for them. <clears throat> I'd now ask you to pray for our president and our military leaders for wisdom for them. And I'd now ask you to pray that God will supernaturally uh, break the heart of Putin and have him stop this. Father, we lift <clears throat> these prayers to you. We pray, you say you're close to the brokenhearted, and we believe that, God, and there's, I mean, just so much sadness that we can't even fathom, God. And so we believe you're bigger than that, and we pray as we have, Father, we lift up to you just your peace and your strength and your comfort for these countless number of people, Father, who are going through uh, unimaginable hardship this morning, that you say you're close to the brokenhearted, and we pray for your presence there. We pray for the leaders. You, you ask us and you tell us and you command us to pray for our political leaders, Father. You told that to Christians who were being persecuted and killed by their leaders. And so regardless of political affiliation, God, you say to pray. And so we pray right now for the leaders in Ukraine and NATO and the European nations that they will be guided by your wisdom. We pray for the leaders of our country, Father, uh, that your wisdom and your clarity will guide them in the next steps. And Father, you are the one who controls the king and the paths of every ruler. And God, you can absolutely, in this absolute moment, break the will of Putin and have him stop this. And we trust your sovereignty, but at the same time, we trust your sovereignty, Father. At the same time, I just pray that you will do that, that you will miraculously intervene and that this will stop um, and that you will bring peace we know, Father, because the Bible tells us that this is what we can expect, that we live in a world where we will always, at different generations and different moments, be facing famines and wars and hardships, and yet you also tell us that one day that will not be what we experience, that one day the king will be ruling on earth and all will be well. And so, Father, I pray that you will inspire that hope within us and help us cling to it and help us to guide the way that we live uh, in what we do. <clears throat> Father, we now shift to what you have for us here at Calvary. We shift to the text that you have us in, and uh, I pray that in our stories here, as we continue to think of what's going on around us, Father, that you have roles for us to play and things for us to do, and you have examples of godly women and men in the Bible who have 
obeyed you and followed you, and one of those people is Nehemiah. And so, God, help us as we, as we explore his story, Father, and will you be glorified in this. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, we'll keep praying, and we'll get that information out to you in the coming days. Uh, we're, we're studying a man. We're studying the life of a guy named Nehemiah. If you're visiting at Calvary or you're newer here, what we do is we open up a book of the Bible, and 99% of the time we go through paragraph through paragraph, right, chapter through chapter. We're doing that in the book of Nehemiah, and interestingly, Nehemiah is a guy who came through, right, the, the, in his people, a time of devastation. <clears throat> he had his city overrun. He had the city in which his people and his grandparents lived in in Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem had been overrun by some neighboring countries, and those neighboring countries, those Babylonians, they destroyed Jerusalem. They burned it, right? And he is now, we're, we're years later, and he's in this uh, foreign country working for the, a foreign king, and we've been studying what's been going on in his story and his life, right? And if you've not been with us, you can catch up, but, but we can pop this first slide up, and here's kind of some of the things that we've seen going on. Ah, look at that. I don't know if that dealio is working, but well, it's not. Canaan is frantically shaking his head. No, Peter, don't even point to that foolish piece of overpriced equipment that doesn't work this morning. We will point to that, right? Here's what we've been seeing. We've, we've been studying Nehemiah in our couple weeks together. We've seen a couple things. First thing we saw is that Nehemiah was this man who saw a need. We talked about that when we kicked off this sermon, that the need that he saw was that that city had been destroyed. The city had rubble that hadn't been fixed. And there was a temple in the city, and <clears throat> the people of God weren't free to worship. They felt nervous worshiping. It wasn't safe to worship. And so not only were the people of God at risk, but the worship of God was being hindered. And Nehemiah was a guy about 700 miles away who week one he saw that need, and that need grabbed him, and that need tugged at his heart. Then what we saw in our next week together is Nehemiah, after having that initial need land on him, this problem, this gap, this situation, right? For four months, he just kind of sat on it. For four months, he let it marinate within him, and he waited, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he waited. And during those four months, right, kind of in the next box, he knew the what, and he prayerfully discerned the how. He knew the what, and he prayerfully discerned the initial how, and in those four-month period, God revealed to him the steps that he should take. And then last week, we saw that this guy finally took the first steps to meet the need. On a particular day, he stepped into the king's chambers in the king's right, courtroom, and he, he made the first conversation. He took his first act of faith, and we unpacked some things about that. Nehemiah was a guy who started as just a man who became aware of a problem, a man who became aware of the problem, but over this four-month period, what he turned into was this leader who then moved to work to solve the problem. We're watching the transformation, the development of a man who became aware of a problem, a person who was tugged at the heart of a world that shouldn't be the way it was, and he felt compelled to do something, and he moved from being just a person burdened by a problem to a leader who stepped up to try to fix the problem. And for you and me this morning, we're, we're maybe somewhere on this trajectory, right? Maybe we're not quite on the screen, but we're thinking about, man, where does God want me to engage? What does God want me to do? Or maybe, like we've talked about for a few weeks, uh, you do sense a tug. And you're at that initial phase where you feel you're being tugged, or maybe you're kind of in the middle and you're praying about, okay, God, I know what it is you want me to do, but now how do I do those things? 
Or maybe a few of you this morning, it was six months ago that you knew God was calling you to do something. He was calling you to act. He was calling you to step up. He was calling you to engage. And you're now kind of taking the first steps of faith. And in your story, in your timeline, you're starting to see some of the things that Nehemiah is experiencing and will experience. Maybe that's not quite you yet, but one day, someday, God's going to tug at your heart and say, bro or broette, here's this situation, here's this thing that... See, I'm politically correct here. <clears throat> I, I, don't, I don't care what all y'all's emails say. I'm whatever. Okay. <clears throat> right. One day God may tug at your heart and uh, move you to stand at the gap. And the hope is that for every single person who knows Jesus, that you allow him to work in your life and you allow him at some point in your life to have you move from a person who just becomes aware of a need, a person who becomes aware of something in the world that isn't the way that God wants it to be, something in relationships that aren't the way God wants them to be, something in your neighborhood, something in community, something in your family that isn't the way God wants it to be, and you move from a person who just thinks, huh, someone should do something about that, to growing into the leader who's actually the person who steps up to do something about that. That's what God wants you to do. We know that that's what God wants you to do because when we kicked off the sermon series, we looked at Ephesians 2.10. And Ephesians 2.10, right, talked about how you are created for particular good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to do. Right? Great verse, Ephesians 2.10. You have been created to, for, specifically created for good works, that God has specifically prepared beforehand for you to do. There is something specific, something unique, some way that God wants you to stand in the gap, and he has wired you, and he has created you, and he will call you to do that. And when he does, the prayer is that you step up and move from just being a person who says, huh, someone should do something about that, to become the leader that does work and trust God to do something about that. And what we continue to say is this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do something extraordinary in terms of what culture would say. Many times what this means is you are called to do ordinary things, but you're called to do ordinary things in a more faithful and a more God-honoring way. And that sometimes moves into extraordinary things, but sometimes it's just a life of ordinary things done well for the glory of God that helps meet a need. And... If the move, goal is for us to move to leaders who meet this need, man, there's, there, there, you can lead anywhere and everywhere. If you're a parent, if you're a mom, if you're a single dad, if you're a single mom, right, if you're a grandma, you can lead in your family. If you're a student, if you're a sixth grader, if you're a fourth grader, if you're an eleventh grader, you can lead in your school to help step up and meet problems. You can lead on your sports team. You can lead in the band as, in, as a neighbor. There's plenty of places in your neighborhood that you can step up and you can engage. And you don't have to go around the world to do that. You can go around your block to do it. Because there are people who are hurting and people who need hope and people who are lonely and people who are scared. And you're a person planted in your neighborhood who many of you know Jesus and you have hope in you and you have the love of God in you to share love with others and maybe that's where you can lead. Here at the church, it's so encouraging. Last week, last week, man, last week was a significant week for me. Here's why. It was literally, this is not a Peter Smith pastoral exaggeration. <clears throat> it's really not. This was literally the first time in two years when I had to get from that hallway to that hallway, and I didn't feel like I was walking through a ghost town with nobody around. 
usually for two years. Well, I've had to get from that hallway to that hallway. Guess who's in the hallway? Me. And like one kid in a classroom. Last week, man, I had to navigate through tons of you who were talking to each other and laughing with each other and connecting with each other. And a lot of that is happening because a lot of you stepped up to lead here at the church. Because a lot of you have stepped up as lay leaders to lead at the church. So, so here's the question. If the goal of all this is to step up and lead into a gap, into a need, into a problem, when we do that, and as we do that, right, what, what can we expect? Is there this attitude that we should have? What are these things that we should do to give us the best chance to succeed? What do we need to know that gives us the best chance to succeed? Have you ever, as we're walking into that, have you ever helped or watched a little toddler type person move from like crawling to walking? Have you ever seen that like as a parent or grandparent or maybe an uncle or an aunt, right? When that little kid is crawling around the ground, man, it'd be really, never mind. I'm not going to crawl on the ground like a four-year month old. That'd be ridiculous. When that little kid is crawling on the ground and we want to then help them walk, what we do as parents, what we do as people, is we do a lot of things to make sure we give them the best chance to succeed. We put the little gates around the stairs so they don't go tumbling down the stairs, right? That would not be the best chance to succeed. Some of you get the little, like, uh, protector pad things, right? And if this is your coffee table with sharp edges, you don't want little Billy to poke their eyeball out with the sharp edges. So, man, you get that thing, like, you know, you've got, like, trampoline mats around that thing so they don't bump the edge. You gently hold their hands so they don't stumble and fall when we have little kids start to walk, we want to help them be in the best chance to succeed. And so the question is for you and me, well, what do we need to know to be in the best chance to succeed as you and I step up to lead and step up to engage? Nehemiah's story, his approach, what he experiences today, is going to show us those things. He's going to show us some things that we should think about, that we should understand, that we should expect in order to have the best chance to succeed. Our text today, if you got a Bible or a device, uh, is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 10 through 20. Nehemiah 2 through 10 through 20. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see one attitude to have, two initial steps to properly move forward, and one thing to expect, right? One attitude to have, two initial steps to properly move forward, and one thing to expect. So let, let's remember what happened last week. Nehemiah had spent four months working on the, not just the what, but the how, and God had given him some very, very specific kind of clear timelines, clear first things he has to do, right? He's got some ways he's going to try and raise money. He knows who he has to talk to. He knows how he gets. So he walks into the king's uh, throne room, and he rolls out this first phase one of the ask, right? First phase one. And he, he tells the king all of these things, and then what happened? Well, we see what happens in the first part, or kind of at the end of verse 8. Here's what happened. Nehemiah just told the king, here's my timing. Here's what I need. I need these letters. I need to get some cash this way. Ba, 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 ba. And what does the king do? We see it. And the king granted me what I asked. The king's like, okay. Doesn't chop off Nehemiah's head. Doesn't banish him to the dungeon. He's like, okay, I'll give it to you, right? Nehemiah got what he wanted. His plan worked. And at that point, he could have gotten a little bit of a big old head, right? He, he could have thought to himself, man, I am such a great leader. 
He could have thought to himself, those four months that I spent putting together my PowerPoint deck for this presentation of the king, those transit, man, I am so good at this. I should stop being a cupbearer and I should move into being a salesman, right? I'm the man. Is that what Nehemiah thought? That's not what he thought. Here's what Nehemiah thought. He said, and the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah went in with this impossible ask. And in that impossible ask, the king's like, cool, thumbs up, green light. Let's make it happen, Captain." And Nehemiah, in that moment, didn't take credit for the initial success. He gave all the credit to God. He walked in with the right, at, walked out with the right attitude, with the right perspective. But sometimes when things go well for us, when we step up in faith to do something, to try to be used by God, and they go, well, you and I sometimes, or as we're thinking about it, we don't always have the right attitude. Here's one attitude to have. I know it's actually two attitudes. Don't, I know that. But I'm going to call it one attitude because it works for the outline. Here's one attitude to have, right? Do not think that success all depends on you, and do not think that success is all because of you. When you feel God calling you to meet a need, when you feel God calling you to have a conversation with a family member, when you feel God calling you to do something in your neighborhood, when you feel God calling you to leave your career and go do something different in the way to serve the kingdom in a different way, and when you step up and in the very first thing you do it goes well, well, in that moment, do not think that success all depends on you, nor think that success is all because of you. Because here's what can happen when we do that. What do you think happens when we, when we think that success all depends upon us? When we think that God has called me to help stand in this gap for a moment, and when we think that all the success of that depends upon us, do you know what happens? We can start to get really anxious, right? We, we can start to get really burdened. Because very rarely does God call us to do something that's within our own power and abilities to do. He has gifted us to do it. He has wired us to do it. But the results are beyond the wiring and the gifting, and it's intimidating. And so when God is going to call you to do something that stretches you out of your comfort zone, that is scary, right? Many times it's easy for us to think, oh my gosh, the weight of this is now all upon me. The success of this Bible study, the success of this book club, the success of my kids, the success of this outreach that I'm trying to do, the success of me leading a community group. All right, we, we sometimes think when we think the success all depends on us, we can really start to get really, really worked up and anxious and overwhelmed and really burdened. And on the flip side, when we think that any success that comes that is all because of us, we could start to get a little arrogant. <laughs> We can start to become the man. God is so lucky that he has me doing this for him. <clears throat> right? I mean, you know, God was a little tired. There's a lot going on. But I stepped up in the gap. And, and you know what often happens in life when we start to go, God's like, oh, big boy, you ain't all that. I remember when I was an associate at a law firm, man, I, I was good. Um, and I was, <laughs> sorry, it's the truth. I was, <laughs> but hold on. There's more to this story. Let's just, let's just end there and go home. 
Nah, I was pretty good. And so because of that, I started to get more and more responsibility. I started to do more things. And I, and, and, but here's the problem. I started, to, I started to buy my own press. And I, I mean, I, I was started to buy my own press. And man, there was this, uh, <laughs> I screwed something up pretty good. I missed something that I should not have missed. And if it wasn't for the kindness of the opposing counsel who handed a case to my partner and said, hey, bro, I don't know what's going on, but you guys, I, you, I didn't see this in your motion, and I'm just helping you out, bro. Here's this case that kind of shows that everything you've argued is wrong. Guess who missed that case? Me! <clears throat> and man, God humbled me. When God said, you think you're all, man, you're not all that. And many times it's even worse in ministry. Man, what Nehemiah did is said, man, something good has happened, and it's happened because the hand of God is upon me. It doesn't, you should be encouraged to know that what God calls you to do in your life, to love and to lead well, doesn't, the success of that doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon him using his power to work through you in the way in which he's created you. And that should give you peace to step up and say, God, you've called me to it. I'm going to obey it. If you don't show up, it's going to flop. But man, I'm, I'm jumping and I'm trusting you to show up because it all depends upon you. And when he shows up, it should keep us humble and grateful because it's all because of him. Our attitude should be that it all depends on him. The attitude should be when it comes to filling the gap, it is all because of him. And the application is this this week. I just encourage all of us to just spend away, spend some time reminding yourself of this this week. I don't know what you're doing in your life. I hope you're doing more than just maintaining the status quo. I really do hope you're doing more than just coming to church for two hours on a Sunday morning. I hope you're engaged where you are and you're pursuing Jesus where you are and you're serving in the ways that he's called you. And if you are and as you are, remind yourself that what the thing is that you've stepped on to serve him, it depends upon him and it is all because of him. And don't put pressure on yourself, nor take the credit. What has he called you to that this week you need to trust him in? <clears throat> because it all depends upon him. Where is it this week that he's called you to do something and you're going to have to step out in faith and trust him? And, and this week, when he works through you or when he does something in you or through you, what it, where is the opportunity for you just to stop and thank him? And say, God, I'm so thankful that you've given me the opportunity to do this. With that proper attitude, Nehemiah got on his horse and he left and he went through the forest and over the river and through the woods to the walls of Jerusalem we go, right? We'll sing that next week. It'll be amazing. We'll do rounds. We'll do men first, women next. It'll be great. Here's what he did. With that attitude, this is what he did next. He came to Jerusalem and this is what he says in verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. And then reading on through verse 15. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. 
What Nehemiah is doing is he's circling the city, and we're going to work through some of that next week. But there's two sets of two repeated terms that reveal something really interesting about what Nehemiah did, right, in this initial stages of continuing to take action. Two steps, two sets of two repeated terms. So here's kind of the first set of repeated terms, right? This idea, verse 12, verse 16, verse 16, I told no one what my God had put into my heart. The officials did not know, and I had not yet told. Nehemiah rolls into town, but he hasn't yet told anybody in that community what he's going to do. It's still internal. He's still thinking through it. He hasn't gone public with it yet. Now, some scholars think that maybe he didn't tell anybody because he didn't want the enemies of the Jewish people to know that they were going to strengthen the walls and try and stop it. Some scholars think that Nehemiah didn't tell the people because he didn't want to get any pushback, right? He still was formulating what to do. We, we don't know necessarily why he didn't tell anybody. But we know that for three days, right, when he first came into the city, this community, the very place to which God had called him to act, he didn't tell anybody what was on his heart to do. He, he's walking around, and as he's walking around, there's a second set of repeated terms that tell us what he's doing, right? Two words, repeated. I was walking, I was expecting, inspected. I was walking, I was walking, inspected, right? The dude's walking around in this pattern, and as he's walking around, he is inspecting. Inspecting means to look at something very carefully. In that culture, in that day, when you would go to a doctor and there was a wound, and the doctor looked carefully at that wound, he would be inspecting that wound. What Nehemiah did for three days, he knew what God had called him to do. He knew some of the initial how of how he was supposed to do that. But he still took some time in private by himself, carefully and personally assessing the problem and continuing to develop a plan. If you know and when you know the what that God wants you to do, right? And you may know a few of the hows of the what. There's still this first step that Nehemiah did in moving forward, and it's this privately plan. Privately plan. He, he didn't just run into town and say, okay, guys, come on, let's go build. Well, how are we going to build? I don't know, but let's just go. He, he didn't want to build the airplane in the air as he was going. He still needed additional information. He'd only heard secondhand about the problem. He had never seen the problem himself. And he needed some time to privately to think, to assess, to plan, and to pray. And there's wisdom when you feel God calling you to do something, not just to jump out and to do it, but to continue to take some time in your own heart privately praying to get the information. Because in those moments, we don't have all the information, and we certainly don't have all the answers. And sometimes we need more time to develop them. Don't leap before you look. Don't leap before you look. Again, that doesn't mean you shouldn't leap. It just means there's wisdom in looking. And what's interesting about Nehemiah is he's reached this threshold. He's, he's reached this threshold where he's not in investigating the walls to decide whether to proceed with the project. He's investing the walls because dude is sold out and he is committed to the project. And he just wants to make sure he has wisdom in how to do the project well. What need might God be calling you to meet? Where might he be calling you to step up? 
And if you know that, <clears throat> have you done anything to investigate that problem? If you know that, have you done anything to, okay, I think this is where it got, so let me dig into the specifics. Let me really get into it. Let me really get my eyes on the problem and get some more information and get some more facts and get some more knowledge. If you know what it is that God wants you to do and you spend some time waiting and praying and praying and waiting, then maybe the next step for you is it's time for you to really press into it and get some hard facts, get your eyes on it. We talked a little bit about that last week, right? Talk to some people who are doing it. Go see it. Test drive it. Have you gotten any personal looks at the problem? But Nehemiah didn't investigate forever. Three days, so don't come back to me in three decades and be like, I'm still investigating, Peter. Back in 2022, I felt like I should engage in the life of my teenager, but I've spent three decades just really investigating that. No, right? He spent three days. And then he went public with his plan. He went public with a plan, and, and going public sometimes, telling other people, hey, this is what's on my heart. I feel this is how I need to, God calling me to do. Going public and how we communicate it can sometimes make us or break us because you're going to need other people around you to help you. You're going to need other people around you to encourage you. You're going to need other leaders around you that you bring in to partner with you in the work. And the way in which you roll out what it is on your heart, man, is so critical to how quickly and how well they're going to rally around you. Here's the second step in moving forward. Go public with your plan, but do it in a proper way. Have you ever driven in New York City have you ever parked your car in New York City? <clears throat> okay. Have you ever parked your car in New York City, not in one of those yuppie little parking lots underground? I mean, have you ever been a New Yorker and parked your car on the street in New York City? Anybody ever done that? It's free on Sundays, I think. Just FYI. Okay. Look, you need like a degree from MIT in astrophysics to sometimes understand the street signs. Have you ever pulled up to a spot in New York City to park on the side of the road? And there are like 40, there are like one pole with seven signs on it. And one sign is like no parking anytime, okay? The other sign is like parking from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. on alternate days that's not the snow route. Then there's a sign that no, says no standing. Like what does that mean, right? And then the sign says like double side parking only in January and February but the fourth Sunday after the second lunar moon is okay. I'm like, I don't know what all that means. Now, hypothetically, it's important to know because <laughs> I'm breaking a rule and telling a story without telling the person I'm going to tell the story, but I'm not going to mention any names, so it's going to be okay. I know this is important because one time I went into New York City with some friends when I was much, much younger, and there were one of these signs at 42, and there was one of the signs that says, no standing. And so the people are like, well, I'm not standing, I'm going to park. Made sense, right? Because that's what the words on the sign said. So we parked because we weren't standing, and then we came back, the car was gone. And it was like somewhere in the Bronx at some lot with German shepherds because it was all very confusing. Hey, the signs in New York City about parking do not clearly convey what they want you to do, and when they don't clearly convey it, it causes all sorts of confusion about what it's supposed to do, right? It, it tells you something public about parking, but it doesn't really do it in a helpful and proper way. When you roll out your plan, if you're a child and you've gone through high school or you're going into college and you're wherever you are in your trade school and you feel like, man, God, I feel like God's calling me to be a missionary, 
got this great path, this great trajectory to be a plumber, and I was going to apprentice and take over this guy's plumbing thing, but man, I feel God tugging on my heart to go be a missionary. When you roll that out and go public with that with your parents, there's wisdom in doing it the proper way. The proper way is not with the bags in your truck being like, oh, by the way, mom and dad, I'm going to Haiti. I'll see you in five years. When you're a guy in a career and you feel like God's calling you to seminary, there's a way to engage your wife and your family in that when you're a dad who's been apathetic in leading your family and it's weighing on you and you feel like, okay, it's time for me to engage. The way to necessarily roll that out is so critical. It's not to sit down at the table and just say, I'm a knucklehead, you're a bunch of knuckleheads, so let's all read our Bible for an hour right now, go. There's a way to engage your kids in what you feel God has burdened you to do. And so Nehemiah rolls this out in a very wise way. Look at what he says, right? So he's done inspecting, he's done privately planning, and then he gathers the leaders and he gathers some of the people together in verse 17. And this is what he says to them. And then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come and let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Now there's five things that Nehemiah does in those couple of sentences, right? And this isn't a formula, this isn't like an equation, but these are some helpful, wise things he did in casting this vision that may be helpful to you. Maybe some of you are like, man, I'm on the verge of going public with what I feel God calling me to do to serve him. I'm on the verge of going public to start this 501c3 to serve people and I want to engage people. So maybe some of the elements in what Nehemiah did will be helpful to you in that, or maybe it'll just be helpful to you in having conversations with your family. So, so let's look through what Nehemiah did. First thing, five things he does. Um, I think the sign says four. That's my bad because I didn't count when I sent it in. For, man, I'm having a hard day counting. <clears throat> it's all the signs in New York City that confuse me so much. Here's the first thing he did. He clearly identified the problem. Verse 17, right? He didn't, he didn't make any bones about it. I said to him, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with a gate burned. He, he didn't make it sound better than what he was. He's like, guys, we got a problem. There's something that's not the way it should be. He clearly identified the problem. And then I love what he does next. This is what a good leader does. And a good leader does this in a genuine way, not a gimmicky way, because you can sniff gimmicky in a second. But this was the heart of Nehemiah. Look, he, he clearly identified the problem. And the second thing he did is he personally identified with the problem. The pronouns we and us are all throughout this. He didn't come into town and said, man, you guys are knuckleheads. He didn't come into town and say, I can't believe that you let this happen. He didn't come into town and say, you didn't fix it yet. You need to step up. I'm going to drink my latte and watch it happen. Instead, look what he says. He talks about the trouble that we are in. Let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer derision. He, he linked himself with this problem. He linked himself with the people. He said, hey, we're all in this together. And together, we need to fix this. Third thing he did, he gave him a reason why something must be done. Not because he just felt like it, 
Not because he was bored. Not because he was burned out a cupbearer and wanted a change of pace. He, he said, man, there's a reason we got to do this. And the reason in verse 17, that we may no longer be in derision. Right? Remember the people in the beginning had said they were suffering great shame and, and great hardship. It was not the way that God wanted them to be. They were the laughingstock of other countries. They couldn't worship God vibrantly. It was all just kind of, ugh. And he said, you know what? Here's why we're going to fix this, because the way you're feeling, what's not happening for God, it's not the way it's going to be. The reason that something must be done is because we want to leave a legacy. The reason something must be done is because we want this city to function the way that God wants it to function. The reason it must be done is because we represent the king of all kings, and right now we're being laughed at. And the people of the king of kings shouldn't be laughed at because our king shouldn't be laughed at. So we need to step up and fix this problem. And so the next thing he did, his fourth step, is he challenged action. He's like, hey, let's build. Let's go. Let's get at it. And then the last step was this. He reminded them that success didn't ultimately depend upon them, and he reminded them that success wouldn't ultimately be because of them. He said in verse 18, he said, now look, I'm calling you to do this. There's a problem. We're in it together. We want to fix this. We want to have a legacy. We want to be a vibrant community for God, and I want you to step up with me and grab a hammer and get a box of nails, and let's make it happen, Cap'n. But I also want you to know that there is a faithful God who has already blessed this work and there is a faithful God who will be with us and, and work through us. And that's what he said in verse 18 where he says these words, right? I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. That, this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, and I, and I told them what God has already done. I told them how God has already done the impossible to get the king to green like this thing. I told them how God was already working. I told them how we can already look before the first brick has been put back in place at the faithfulness of God in confirming this work to be done. Man, this is one of the shortest, most motivational speeches in history because the people then, how do they respond? Verse 18, they're like, hey, let's rise and build. Let's go. Right? Woo! I don't know if they did that. That's in my version of the Bible. It's probably not in yours because I have a secret version. Five steps, five elements when Nehemiah went public. And I would just encourage you, when you share with people what's on your heart and where you feel God calling you to step up in the gap, it is helpful perhaps to look back over those and think about if maybe God would have you weave some of them in your conversation. You know what's interesting about that, what Nehemiah did? There's really nothing new in there. I mean, the people could look around and realize everything that's going on. Vision casters rarely bring new information to the table. Instead, what vision casters do is usually bring a passionate concern about an existing problem. Someone who wants to lead into a vision to fix something, they usually don't bring any new information to the table. What they bring is a passionate concern about the problem and a desire to rally people around it to fix it. The people jumped on board. They ran out to Home Depot and they started getting their supplies, right? They put on, <laughs> I tell my kids whenever I'm doing a project and I'm putting on my workman daddy clothes. All that means is really bad jeans and, and shirts with paint all over, right? 
These guys all ran home to get home their workman daddy clothes. They came back together, and right after the people jumped on board, okay? This is so important what happens. Let's see what happens. Verse 19. The people said, let's rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? The moment, right, right after there's positive, there's excitement, there's something going well, right after that, Nehemiah faced criticism. He faced criticism from three people. We've heard of those two people before. I skimmed over it, but up in verse 10, we first hear these two people who are like, I don't like this. Now, right here, they start offering criticism. We're going to hear of these people and more people throughout Nehemiah's story who they just constantly are critics constantly are critics. Nehemiah faces external criticism. Nehemiah is going to face internal criticism. And what we're going to do is we're going to take one Sunday, one sermon, and we're going to kind of look at the different instances starting up in verse um, 10 of chapter 2, and we'll unpack this one more. And we're just going to spend a week thinking about the different forms of criticism that Nehemiah faced and whether it discouraged him what he did for it. But, but here's what you need to know for today until we take that day, right? Many times when you step up to act, many times when you feel like you are doing what it is that God wants you to do, many times when you take a step of faith, many times when you go public, if you're about to do that Monday, guess what? If you're about to go public, if you're about to take a step of faith at Monday at 10 a.m., about 10.41 on Monday, expect some criticism. Expect some criticism. Discouragement, Division, distraction, criticism. It's coming. Don't let it knock you off track. For some of you, when you experience that, it can be a landmine. And you can say, yeah, I'm serving God, I'm doing it, and you are doing it. And all of a sudden, somebody's like, seriously? You know what's so compelling about this criticism? This is what these guys say. right? The criticism is, this is a little spoiler alert for when we next talk about it, right? They jeered and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Nehemiah is not rebelling against the king. Nehemiah works for the king, right? Nehemiah told the king exactly what he wanted to do. The king blessed exactly what Nehemiah was going to do, right? You, you know what's in that criticism about you're rebelling against the king? Man, it, it, is, it is an unfair assumption about Nehemiah's attitudes, It is an unfair assumption about Nehemiah's intent. And many times what's harmful about criticism, people throw it at you and they lobby about you, and they're they're inferring improper motives or an improper heart that you have. And they're like, bro, what are you talking about? That's not the reason I'm doing it. It's, It's lies. It's lies about your motives that can cause so much discouragement and so much distraction. And Nehemiah faced it repeatedly, and Nehemiah faced it repeatedly, because when you step up and as you step up to lead as a godly parent, to serve in a church, to use your money in a way that furthers God's kingdom, to try to make a stand in your neighborhood, to get out of your emphasis on your Fairfield County yuppie, schluppy lifestyle and start caring about people who around you who have some needs, and you step into meeting that, the criticism is right behind. And don't let it be a landmine that blows you off the track of what the king of all kings is calling you to do.
one thing to expect is criticism. That's, we spent some time this morning looking at what Nehemiah did, and from that we've pulled some things for our own stories that can help put us in a good chance to succeed, right? Give us the best chance of, of the attitudes that we should have, of some things that we should do with privately planning and going public in a wise way, and something that we should expect to happen so we're not surprised when it happens, so we're not discouraged when it happens, so we don't quit when it happens, which is criticism. And again, I, I'm excited about the criticism series because... Um, we all face criticism, and uh, this will surprise you. Did you know that people in ministry who pastor a church face criticism? <laughs> Can, oh, did you not know that? And man, I'm just encouraged by looking into this, and I know God's going to work in my heart and our heart when we talk about that. So let's talk for a minute as we close here about just an opportunity, our own wall-building moment here at Calvary Church. You ready to hear about our own little wall-building moment? And I'm not going to be gimmicky and like track, you know, track what Nehemiah did, right? But, but let me tell you about this opportunity, about this issue, about a place that we need you to stand in the gap. Two weeks ago or so, or last week, a couple of weeks ago, we had a family meeting. And we launched this new vision at Calvary. It was an amazing time. At least I enjoyed it, sharing that, right? This vision to be a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact people through God's love and truth. A body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact people through God's love and truth, right? There's a growing as a body piece. There's a growing as a disciple piece. And then there's an impact piece. Yet last week, we rolled out this different ways for you to get involved, to be in environments, to grow as a disciple, through some classes. We've rolled out two community groups where people who have been longing to build relationships at Calvary have been in groups of people. We had an amazing turnout in those community groups, okay? Here's the great thing. This is the great thing. Ready? We have a good number of people from their 20s to their 40s who have little kids who are part of this story. We had a huge number of that demographic last week, and with that number, that demographic last week, they got them some kids, They got them some toddlers. They got them some babies. That is good. Because that baby who I did, that's, I love hearing kids in our service. I'm not lying. You know why? Because if you hear kids in the service, you realize, man, there's a next generation that God's bringing up. I I don't, I'm getting older. I'll still whoop any of you. I'm getting older. I've told our team this repeatedly. I will not we cannot allow our, we cannot sit around here and all of us just keep getting 10 years older and 10 years older and 10 years older and look around and we're a bunch of 90 year olds with no next generation. I ain't driving the plane into that mountain. I'm not. The good news is God's not having that happen. The beauty of Calvary Church, I say this repeatedly, the beauty of Calvary Church is that we are a multi-generational church. That is a blessing. It is a blessing because there are young parents here who don't know what to do. And there are some of you grandparents in the room who you have navigated that, and you need each other. It is a blessing because there are marriages in this room of young 20-year-olds, right, who just want encouragement, and there are some of you who have been married for 20 years who can give that. It is a blessing that we're not all 90 years old, and it is a blessing that we're not all 20 years old, because there is a richness in our body that is a blessing. We had a ton of little kids in our nursery, in our kids' classes, and that is something we should thank Jesus for. Because imagine if we got up here and said, yeah, we launched all this stuff and not a single person in the next generation engaged in it. Yeah, we launched all this stuff, but man, we don't have any kids. That's not what God's done for us. 
And so here's the need, though. We need some of us to be able to step up and to help take care of people in our church's kids so that that next generation in our church can grow as disciples and can more deeply connect as a body so that we have something to pass on to the next generation. I, not I, our leadership team in Savannah was given a free building because we had outgrown our space and because we had tons of little kids and because there was a church with a great facility that at one time had been booming and had gotten down to about 20 80-year-olds in this huge building. And there were no more kids, there were no more families, and so they, man, being generous and kingdom-minded, they gave the church to us. I don't want to get to a church of a bunch of 80-year-olds with no more kids, because, you, because if that's what God has for us, but that's not what God has for us. God has given us kids, God has given us families, and so now some of us need to step up and care for them. Wouldn't it be a shame if people who are in that age group of young families came to Calvary because they feel that God called them here and they're growing, but they said to each other, man, but there's nobody to take care of my kids because none, none of that generation above me will step up to help. And so I'm going to go down the road to another church because nobody there is willing to get off their blue chairs and their fanny to help watch my kid for an hour. We need 20 people to stand in the gap and to say, man, we are so grateful that God is bringing young life and that God is bringing younger people to Calvary to pass the legacy onto them. And we need 20 people to step up out of your comfort zone and say, you know what? I'm willing to sacrifice some of my own time to serve some kids, to serve some parents, so that those parents can grow as a disciple or grow more deeply, be being cared for or connected to our body. If we have 20 people who say, man, let me get on my workman daddy clothes and let me step up and build. Then you will serve once every six weeks. Once every six weeks. I know some of y'all don't come to church, but once every six weeks. So this will be a new experience for you. <clears throat> what are you going to do? What are we going to do? I know what I want to do. I want anybody in the generations behind me who says, I want to learn God's word and I feel him calling me to Calvary Church. I want to do every single thing we can to care for them well and to pour into them. And I don't want them to leave. Not because I care about the size of our church, because I care about the people who come to this church. And we need help. And man, maybe that's the thing that God will tug on your heart. 20 people once every six weeks. Are you willing to give up an hour one time every six weeks to serve a bunch of people younger than you so that their kids and them as a couple or a single can get to know Jesus and get to know each other better. Are you willing to do that? And if you're not, come on. What are you doing? Now, I know so many of you serve in so many places faithfully. Probably right now, the people who are thinking this, you're the person who's already doing 42 things. You're already making coffee. You're already greeting. You're already doing community. This is an opportunity for some of you who are not doing anything, who like kids. If you hate kids, then go make coffee. <clears throat> um, so let's not, let's, not, let's not ignore 
the blessing that God is bringing to our church. Let's not ignore the way that God is continuing to be part of the hallmark of Calvary Church being a multi-generational church. And let's not look at the generation under you and saying, no, we don't really want you because it's a little inconvenient to serve you. Oh, that will make me mad and I will hunt you down and kick you in your shins. <laughs> so 20 people. Once every six weeks, here's the way that you can do that. There's a bulletin out there. You can fill in the bulletin, check a box, right? Nursery toddler team, and you can drop it in that offering box. Or you can use a QR code and make a comment that I want to serve. Um, and I'm excited to see what God will do in your life as you step up to do that. So that's our Nehemiah moment. Um, let's not miss it. I'm going to call the worship team up here, and we're going to pray. And then in 15, after we sing our song, right about 10.30, we are kicking off these new environments. And so if you weren't here last week, we got four or five classes. We got an intro. Ah! We got the opportunity to buy a new iPad. We have an <coughs> intro to Calvary class. We have an overview of the theology class. We have a marriage class. We have a class in Philippians. Um, we have two different community groups that are meeting this time, and all of that goes on uh, in about 15 minutes. And there's a little stanchion in the thing that tells you uh, the information about where to go, and I'll be around, and some of our leaders will be around. Um, so let me pray, and then we will sing this song uh, together. Father, uh, thank you for... Just the story of Nehemiah, and as we continue to think about our own lives, God, um, and the seasons that you have us in and call us into and call us out of, um, we just pray that you continue to speak to all of us through this book. Thank you, Father, for the uh, amazing richness of people who have lived decades loving you and serving you and what they have to offer those of us who are younger. And thank you for the younger folks, Father, who want to be part of this body and who you're bringing here. And I pray for all of us who continue to grow us as a disciple. And may we really know the ways that you want us to serve well for each other and love well and care for each other um, well. And help us now as we move into this next hour and uh, continue to work through that time. Um, and thank you, Father, for what you're doing and who you are. Amen.